All right, well, today we're finishing our mini-series on politics, and maybe you've been tracking with us, maybe you haven't. I'm going to give you a quick review regardless. During the first message, Dr. Gary gave a message called Politics in the Pulpit, and in this message, Gary asked if sin and redemption and following Jesus have political implications. And I believe the answer to that is, yes, it does. He encouraged us not to be silent and that our silence is actually saying something that we really don't want to say, which is that we're supporting the status quo even when that status quo is deeply, deeply broken. For the second installment, installment, Reverend Sabrina Chan gave a talk about institutional racism, and she worked through the text of Acts chapter 6, and she used that to address how Asian Americans have faced institutional racism. An example of this is that people of other races can go, why can't you be like the model minority? And use that as an excuse not to change oppressive structures. And the truth is is that uh, within Asian Americans, there are groups that are not doing so well and groups that are suffering. And so it's not fair to just generalize. And then for the third message, Calvin talked about immigration reform. How clearly in the scripture, God has a tender heart for immigrants, for people who are strangers and foreigners in the land, people who are vulnerable. And so it stands to reason that the compassionate heart of God is turned towards immigrants, not against. And we live in a time, and we have an administration that is passing laws, and their hearts really seems to be against those whom God would be for. And now today, I have the task of closing this mini-series Uh, Thank you, by the way, for those of you who have sent feedback on what has been preached, both positive and negative. We've uh, never had a mini-series on politics before, and so we didn't really know where the lines were, you know, the good ones that need to be crossed and the bad ones where we shouldn't cross. And one way that you figure out where the lines are is that you cross them. And so we've been learning along the way, and your, helpful, your feedback has been very helpful. When it comes to political engagement, I just want to ask you all just to do a quick moment of reflection. On a scale of 1 to 10, how politically engaged are you? I want you to turn to a neighbor right now, right next to you, and just give them a number. I hope that's not too personal. I hope that's not too revealing. How political are you on a scale of 1 to 10? You have five seconds, go. And now the other person can share. And now it's my turn to share. Okay, I told you we didn't have much time. Okay, so. um, So, okay, when it comes to politics, do I talk about politics a lot? Like, have I talked about politics a lot from the pulpit? No. Uh, do I read up on news a lot? Like some, some, some people are constantly on the news, finding out what's happening. What did Trump tweet and all, you know. Do, do I do that? No, not, not really. I'm engaged, but not that engaged. Have I ever gone to a protest? I'm wondering, have you ever gone to a protest? I actually have gone. Um, but that's because Colin Tomikala inv- uh, invited me, and I didn't want to disappoint my brother, so I went. So I don't know if that really counts. 
So I would say for me on that 10-point scale, I'm like a strong two, one. Um, and here's, my honest, here's my honest reason. It's not that I don't believe in politics, I do. But I was thinking, why am I like mostly apolitical? It's not really because I don't believe in politics. It's because of my upbringing. That's right. I'm blaming my parents. <laughs> my parents would never talk about politics. Uh, maybe Taiwanese politics, but not really uh, American politics, uh, just to qualify that. Uh, go to a protest, my parents. That's, that's funny. That, that's kind of funny. Um, I, I can imagine that. Uh, the, the truth is, we weren't especially poor, we weren't especially rich, and so we felt pretty comfortable being in the middle. So don't make waves. Don't try to change things. Turn on the media, the conversation didn't really include Asian Americans. It was more of a black and white conversation. And so we just felt like we're really not included, so just stay out of it. And so I grew up in an apolitical environment, and so it's no surprise that I am all grown up, and I didn't really get involved in politics that much. So maybe you can relate to me. Maybe you can relate to me. And so for this fourth and final message, we are going to, again, present a final case for the biblical case for political engagement. And you might be wondering, Pastor Andrew, are you really qualified to be up here talking about politics? I think that's a fair question. In fact, right before I got up here, my son very astutely pointed out that everyone on the worship team was wearing glasses. And so he said, so dad, you belong up there too. So apparently that's my only qualification for being up here, that I have glasses, according to my son. Now I'm going to say this, I think I do belong up here, and I have a voice in, the, in here, even though I'm, I'm, I'm the two on, on the 10 point scale, because number one, I love my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I'm very passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I... I think that the gospel is not just beautiful, but it is objectively the answer to every heart that is searching for meaning and forgiveness and joy and justice in this world. So there's some conviction there. But I also believe that this beautiful gospel is connected to political engagement. I do. And so for the next 30 minutes, I want to connect the dots from the gospel to social engagement and then from social engagement to politics. Are you ready? I'd like to start with some teaching that Jesus gave from the Good Samaritan. It's in Luke chapter 10. If you have a Bible, please turn there. This passage is going to start by Jesus answering a question that a lawyer brings up. And the question is this. What must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what do... I have to do to be in a right relationship with God so that this kingdom that he's a part of, I can be a part of, and when I die, I can be taken to heaven. Now, I don't have to tell you that the stakes in this question are huge. I mean, ultimately, what's at stake is heaven or hell and where we're going to wind up. What does God require of his people? Big stakes here. Okay. Um, and now here we go. Uh, Luke 10, starting in verse 25, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And behold, a lawyer stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, 
what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, yes, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Now, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, I, I want to, what I want to do in our teaching is I want to point out the two most obvious main points from this teaching. I know I could go line to line by line. I'm not going to do that. Sometimes I think the most obvious main big picture points are really the most powerful, and that's where I'm going. I'm going to just tell you what I think the first one is. The first point I believe from this teaching that Jesus gave is this. Everyone in the world needs a savior. I don't know if that's overly simplistic. I just think it's right there. Do you see it in the text? Let me give you the inductive explanation for how I see this in the text. The lawyer comes to Jesus asking, what's the way to eternal life here and now and going on forever? Jesus points to the law, but the problem is that there's 613 Mosaic laws. It's hard to keep track of 613 laws. That's a lot of laws. So Jesus asked the lawyer to summarize it, and the lawyer summarizes it like this, love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus responds and says, that's a good summary. Jesus approves. Now, the lawyer wants to justify himself. So he asks Jesus to define neighbor. Thinking that Jesus is going to give him a definition where the lawyer can feel pretty good about that definition and say, yep, I, that's pretty much what I'm doing. Jesus begins to tell him a story. And one thing contextually you should know about this culture is that to the ancient Jewish person, Samaritan was a dirty word, dirty words. Jews hated Samaritans. 
Who is my neighbor? Jesus says, your enemy. What is neighbor love? Jesus gives a story where love knows no bounds. Love knows no boundaries. Notice Jesus turns neighbor from a noun to a verb. Look at what the Good Samaritan does. He puts himself in harm's way. He gives him every resource necessary, medicine, binds his wound, puts him on his own donkey, pays for his lodging, spends all night caring for the man, pays for his future lodging. Now, let's go back to the first point. Who has done this? I think that's a fair question. Church, can I ask you, who has done this? Uh, Let me put it this way. If you feel like that pretty much describes me, right? Where, Where I have loved God with all of my heart, all my soul, all my being, ever since You know, ever since I was small and ever since the age of accountability, I have been loving God with, with, and then I have been loving my neighbor, including enemies, especially enemies, with no boundaries. What I want you to do, I want you to to invite you, and remember, what I, I want you to invite you to stand up, squat, do the left, right, and then I want you to say, humble but honest, Okay? Remember what Jesus is asking here for. Okay, the count of three, if that's you, I want you to reveal yourself. One, two, three, go! No one. Okay, are, are you being honest? Are you being like, oh, I'm just so humble, it's really me, but do, do you know anyone who has done this? Okay, well, do you see the problem here? Do, do you see the problem here that I'm working out? Now, I'm being very honest with the scripture. Here is a man that says, what must I do to be right with God and and to actually go towards heaven when I die? Jesus is giving him a job description that clearly no one has done. Do you see the problem? Do you you feel the problem? I mean, that's got to be a problem. If Jesus says something, like, I haven't done it. Have you? I haven't done it either. Do you know anyone who's done it? No one's done it. How could this not be the first thing that grabs you when you read this text? It's a problem. It's a problem that what God requires of us, no one has done, wouldn't you say? And and here's the thing. Nowadays, uh, if you go and you talk to people on the street or you pull someone at work or at school and you ask them, like, you know, do you believe in heaven? Not everyone's going to say yes, by the way, but some people will say, yes, I do. And then you say, do you believe that one day you'll go there? And most people will probably say, yeah, I think so. And then you say, well, why do you think so? And the answer normally is something, well, like, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I'm no saint, but I'm pretty good. Now, that might be true, that you're a pretty good person compared to someone else you know. But right here, it's like, oh my goodness, Jesus is giving the standard of what God requires from people in order to go to heaven, and we don't know anyone who has done that. That's a problem. And the first point of this parable, no one's kept the law. Everyone has fallen drastically short. Everyone needs a Savior. I love how Will was up here just keeping it real. 
I loved it. I just wish all of our church could be so honest with our brokenness. So honest with our brokenness. The words that we have said, the things that we've done. Would I want you to know the top five sins of this week that I have done? No. Will inspires me in his courage that he just let it, and, but, but my own sins are very shameful when I'm honest. Jesus in this parable is explaining why he came into the world. Not just to give amazing teaching, but to die on the cross. Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. And the first thing Jesus is saying in this parable is that everyone needs a Savior. And the good news is we have one. A beautiful, beautiful Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you receive him as your Savior in faith, you can inherit eternal life. And this is the first point of this passage. Everyone needs a Savior. Can you turn to someone next to to you and say, everyone needs a Savior? Someone needs to turn to me and say, Andrew, you desperately need a Savior. And it's true. Let's go to the second point. But I think the second point from this parable is this. This. Okay. Maybe this one's a little bit more obvious from from the passage. Loving neighbor is not optional. Now, I'm, I'm getting this from this passage. Loving your neighbor is not optional, but essential. Loving neighbor is not optional, but essential. If the first point is that we need a Savior, and then the second point is that it's because we have a Savior in Jesus Christ, we are now able by his Spirit, by his grace, to grow in loving our neighbor and in our hearts to fulfill this commandment. Jesus did not die on the cross so that we don't have to do any of this. Jesus died on the cross so that the requirement of the law can be fulfilled. We can be forgiven by God in right standing with God. And you know what happens? We start actually fulfilling this commandment. Jesus is asking the lawyer what God requires of us. And Jesus winds up telling a story of meeting the needs of a needy person. So a big obvious point is that loving those who are in need, loving the poor, is not optional. It is essential. Don't get me wrong. Please do not get me wrong. I, I think one thing I hope I'm making very clear is there's no way a person can love neighbor enough to earn heaven. No, no, no. That's why you need a Savior. My point is that when this Savior comes into your life, your heart begins to change. New love is born by the Holy Spirit. And you know what happens? You start loving your neighbor. Now the third point. Now, now let me check in, because I told you that with this message, I wanted to connect the dots between the gospel to social compassion, and then social compassion to politics. Let me just check in with you. Are you guys all with me? Nod your heads if you're with me. Even if you're lost, just nod your head so that I'll feel better and you can encourage me. Thank you. Okay. I said I have three points with this message. First point is this. We all need a... Help me. Okay. And the good news is that you have one in the Lord Jesus Christ if you believe in him. The second point is this. Social concern is not optional. It is essential. It is essential. Once you've received Jesus as Lord and Savior, you start to actually love the poor. 
Okay, uh, and we're all connecting the dots here. So now I've connected the dots, hopefully, from the gospel to social concern. Now I want to connect the dots from social concern to politics. Here's the third point. Political engagement is another tool towards a more comprehensive way of loving the poor. Let me say that again. Political engagement is another tool towards a more comprehensive way of loving the poor. Remember the parable, it's teaching, that neighbor love knows no boundaries. We will love our neighbor comprehensively. There's three categories for how we love the poor. Number one, you share resources. Number two, you build relationships. Number three, this is not one we often think about. We change the social political structure. Now, stay with me, okay? First two, you go small. You focus on the individual. But when you really want to love the poor and go big, then you're seeking to change the political structure. Loving the poor through politics is loving them big. That's the point I want to make. That's, the, that's really the third point I, I want to make. If you look in the Good Samaritan passage, you see the first two ways very clearly. The man... The the Jewish person is beaten down, so he's given medicine, safety, lodging. That's number one, sharing resources. The Good Samaritan then spends the whole night caring for the, the broken man. When you spend an entire night caring for someone, you're building relationship. Number two is established pretty easily in the Good Samaritan. So you're thinking, well, where's the third one? Where's the third one? It's there. It takes a little imagination to see it, though. Let's say the next week the Good Samaritan is down the same road again. There's another beaten down man, brutalized and left for dead. Another one does the same thing, puts him on the donkey, takes him to the lodge. Let's say next month, another man, but there's two people who are, and at some point the Good Samaritan says, something needs to change. You know, at some point the Good Samaritan says, how can we stop the violence? At some points, He's he's like saying, we need to put more police around this area because it's not okay that people are getting uh, beaten up and left for dead. Now it becomes more of a political issue and a governmental issue. But it's all in the heart and the name and the love of loving the poor. Do you see that? You see, connecting the dots here. You you all with me? The the first two are small. I'm caring for the individual. I'm caring for the love. Here's some money. Here's some money. Relationship, love, kindness, dignity. But at some point, you go, how can we stop the violence? Or at some point, you go, this structure is perpetuating brutality. It's not right. we got to change the structure in addition on top of caring for the individual. Tim Keller, in his book, Generous Justice, he tells this story. It's told by an urban pastor by the name of Robert Linthicum. He was a student ministry intern He was working with black teenagers in a government housing project in a city in the U.S. A 14-year-old girl by the name of Eva began to attend one of his Bible studies. At what point, Eva came to him, and she was deeply troubled, and she says, Bob, I'm under terrible pressure. I don't know what to do. There's a large gang in this project that recruits girls to be prostitutes for wealthy white men in the suburbs. And they're trying to force me and Bob says, don't give in to their demands. You need to stick with the Bible study group. Don't give in. You need to stay with the group. 
And then he goes home for a summer vacation, and three months later he returns, and Eva just disappeared. She's gone. She wasn't around. And the other youth told him that she stopped coming one month after he went on vacation. Robert goes to Eva's apartment. And as soon as she sees him, she bursts into tears. They got to me, Bob. And then he was like indignant. Like, how could you give in like that? Why didn't you resist? And then she told the story. You know, first they beat my father, and they beat him really bad, Bob. And I had no choice. I had no choice, and so I gave in. And then Robert goes, Eva, why didn't you get help or protection? Why didn't you go to the police? And Eva goes, when I say they got to me, who do you think the they are? The they were the police. Now, at this point, Robert Linthicum understood that sin is not just an individual thing. It extends legally, politically. It extends to social structures. When I think about loving the poor, I think about the individual. I'm thinking about relationships. We have to understand sin is much bigger than just individuals. It has far-reaching effects. And because we love the poor, we have to have a more comprehensive engagement. Now again, this is just me connecting the dots. This is, this is a message in one sense dedicated to those who identify as sort of apolitical. And then we just want to step back and just say, okay, do you hear the gospel? Yes. Do you understand that, that a part of the gospel, the heart of the gospel, is social compassion? Yes. And now we're saying that political reform is a means of loving the poor. Now, if we talk about politics, I think a lot of you might be like, yeah, yeah, that's not me. But if we talk about the gospel and we connect it to loving the poor and we connect it to a comprehensive way of loving the poor, then I think maybe we got you. It certainly gets me. Now, um, to further kind of connect the dots, maybe I can share uh, just my own personal story. Um, Our church office used to be in El Cerrito, right by the old guitar center. You kind of know where that is. And there was a homeless man by the name of James who would always, that was his area. That was like his house, if you will. He would sleep on the sidewalk. And I would always walk by. And over the years and years that we were at Old Guitar Center or nearby there, I built a relationship with James. And I would, I would go and buy him some milk and we would sit on those big kind of blocks and we would just talk. And I would just talk to James, and, you know, I'm just talking, I'm just talking. He, I would notice, would mumble a lot, and he would just say the same things over and over. I noticed that when he would get up in the mornings, he would um, be sleeping in a puddle of his own urine. And that, that, I don't know, that was, he had a mental illness. I learned a lot from James. There was one time I said, James, what are you into? Are you into football? You like football? He said, no, I'm into watching sunrises and sunsets. I still think about that because I'm, sometimes I'm crazy busy. I just I think of James waking up and just enjoying a sunset. slows me down, keeps me centered. Apparently, James doesn't have to do anything, and he's still loved by the unconditional love of God, and that, that centers me. Well, um, so this is, this is what happened to me recently. I, I met with the young adults, and we were in this voting workshop, and I was invo- invited to attend, and it just so happened that my 
uh, issue that I was researching and sharing with the rest of the group happened to be Prop 2, which was uh, building so structures for, uh, like, like complexes for homeless people with, mentally, with, with mental illness. And that was my assignment and I researched. I've never done as much research on a proposition as this. You know, I spent, what, like 20 whole minutes, you know, researching that one proposition. Yay, you know, crown in heaven, right? But I'm just kidding. But um, so I did it. And I shared it with the rest of the group, you know, this is what I'm thinking about Prop 2, you know, homeless, mentally ill. And then that was it. And then I went home and I was pre preparing for this message. And suddenly it dawned on me that by researching this issue and casting a vote, I didn't know this at the time, but what dawned on me is that I was caring for James. I feel strongly about this because I think of James. Why should my friend with a mental illness not have a place to live? Can't we, as a society, take better care of our mentally ill? And I started to see that political engagement, big, is a way of loving James, small, and the two go hand in hand. I was connecting the dots. Are you guys connecting the dots with me? One more story. I'll share one more story. Um, Hopefully to connect the dots even more, this very personal story, but again, I was thinking about this and I'm like, oh, a light went on for me. One thing that Raina and I care very pa passionately about is protecting the purity of our kids. We have three kids, two boys, one girl. So we're very mindful of what they see in the media, movies, stuff like that. We want to protect their purity. One day I'm at the video store and I'm picking out a DVD for 15 seconds, all right, maybe it was 20, 20, 23 seconds, I lost track of my son. He was seven, seven years old at the time, seven years or eight years old. I don't know where he is because I'm really focused on these movies right here. I look at this curtain. I go, oh, there's a curtain there. I look on this sign that's next to the curtain, and it says, no one under 18 allowed behind this curtain. So I'm reading, and at that moment, Life went slow-mo, right? No one behind 18 is around this curtain. Where's my son? Where is he? I went, Ryan, Ryan, Ryan. And speed up, Ryan, 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 get out of there, Ryan, you know? And so Ryan comes behind the curtain. He's like this. No, I didn't know what to say to him because I'm just like, well, maybe he didn't see anything, but maybe he did, but I don't know. You know and so I, I don't know. I didn't process it very well. I, I, I was like, he was in there for about 20, huh, right? And so we're, I'm talking to him about it, and I'm on the way home, and on the way home, I talked to Raina, like, Raina, uh, this happened at the video store. Okay. I got to tell you about the reaction of my wife. My wife was, I don't say this in the pulpit, but I'm just being like, uh, she was pissed, okay? Okay, I want to say that. She was very mad. She was very upset. She was very upset. Now, can you guess the first person she was upset with? Me. How can you lose track of him for 20 seconds, Right? And I'm like, I, I, I always see with, I, I don't know, uh, yeah, you're right, you're right, okay. And then, you, you, can you guess the next uh, person she was angry with? It wasn't with Ryan. It was with the video store. Because he's seven years old, he can barely, he can read that well. It's a curtain. And so she was mad, and she's like, you know something, I'm going to go to that video store. I'm going to give them a piece of my mind, right? I'm like, this should be very interesting, 
Somebody said, you want me to go with you? She goes, no, you don't have to. But I was thinking not of supporting her, but really protecting the video store owner. <laughs> so she goes, and she's like, and, and I, you know, I don't have what she said verbatim, but she, but she was like, can I talk to the store owner? And they weren't there. And like, well, then you tell them. And then she just like, you know, kind of went off in, in a loving, very Christian way. Very, you know, <laughs> gentle. I'm sure, you know. Now, I didn't, I didn't, know, I didn't know this until I really thought about it later. Because apolitical me, you know, but here I'm connecting the dots. My wife just went political. It's one thing to care about the individual, which means that he saw these things, we'll pray for him, we'll talk to him. But it's another thing to realize that we live in a society that is sick with structures that are messed up. They have laws that permit this. But still... There is a cry of injustice and care for little ones and their purity. And so social concern is not just caring for individuals, but seeking the grace of God to change those structures out of love for God, out of love for others, and out of our desire to serve the world. And so is this part of our fight? Yes, this is part of our fight. This is fighting the good fight. But it's fueled by our understanding that we are saved by grace, by Jesus Christ. And because we are saved by grace, we care, we love, and we seek to change the world. And we do it by loving individuals and by seeking by God's grace to change social structures. Join us in this fight. But do remember, it begins with knowing the Savior, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior. And so all things are dedicated to him. Let's pray. Father God, I do thank you for the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because if our call was just political, it's just too external. It's too external. But since we are saved by Jesus Christ and we are bound into his love and to his mission, we can live lives that are changed from the inside out unto the glory of God. We know that in a few moments, Will is going to be um, baptized, and his life is effectively dedicated to the purposes of Jesus, a very holy thing. I pray that we would, we, would, we would behold it with a sense of awe, with fear and trembling, but also with a great sense of celebration. Thank you, Jesus, that you change us from the inside out. And in your name we pray, amen.